0: On part two of the 519 Podcast presents the Donnellys, Vigilante Justice or Violent Anarchy, we look at the night the Donnellys were killed, what happened when the vigilante mob showed up at their house, who was killed, who survived, and who eventually went on trial. Then we look at the legal system and how it may have failed the Donnelly family and the reaction of the community afterwards. Here's your host, Haley Cheng.
1: The night of February 3rd, 1880, was cold and dark. The only light to be seen was the moon reflected off the snow. The Donnellys were asleep at this point. It was far too late to be expecting company. Yet suddenly they were woken up by hammering knocks on their front door. James Donnelly was the first Donnelly to wake up.
0: When James answered, James Carroll had snuck in through the back and handcuffed Tom Donnelly because he had the reputation of being a, a fearless fighter and... They were afraid of him, you know, having his hands loose and angry.
1: That night in the Donnelly household, they had a few extra people staying over. The vigilantes on their way to the home were not expecting them. Alongside Joanna and James were their son Tom, Bridget Donnelly, a cousin from Ireland there to help with daily tasks, and 13-year-old Johnny O'Connor, who was sleeping over after a long day of working on the Donnelly farm. Yet the committee wasn't deterred. Again, here's Thomas Levesque of the Lucan Area Heritage and Donnelly Museum.
0: When things kind of sparked off that night, the uh, committee had them surrounded, and I think the the Donnellys kind of recognized things weren't quite right. Uh, Tom broke free from uh, his captors and tried to rush his way out the door, which he succeeded in knocking his way through, but somebody met him with a pitchfork, and uh, when he fell back into the house. That kind of sparked the, the violence there. Uh, somebody had yelled to finish him with a spade, and someone did, and um, from there the, the violence kind of exploded. Uh, James and Joanna were killed, Bridget ran upstairs to try to escape, and was brought back down and killed, um, and the house was set on fire.
1: The only person to escape the house alive and bear witness to the tragedy was young Johnny O'Connor, who was hidden under the bed during the massacre. When the Vigilance Committee thought they'd taken care of all their loose ends, they continued on to Will Donnelly's house.
0: A smaller group of the Vigilance Committee, uh, fearing the reprisal that Will would bring to them because he was always seen as and kind of appropriately seen as the ringleader because he was the smartest one. Uh, The fear was that he could organize, you know, retribution. They went to his house in an attempt to kill him. So they, uh, they showed up, yelled for him. He tried to get out of bed but between the club foot and being on the other side of his wife he uh, was a little slow to get up but his brother john who was staying there the night got to the door first opened it seeing the silhouette the men shot and killed him and ran off yelling i i killed bill donnelly and uh that was kind of the the end of the violence that night they burned down the cabin with uh the james joanna bridget and tom inside john died with his brother and his sister-in-law and uh that's, that's, that's the, the dark, very, very difficult side of the story.
1: By the time authorities and reporters arrived on the scene of the massacre, all that was left was the Donnelly's burnt down house frame and a plethora of footprints in the snow, leaving the scene of the crime. It was one of the worst massacres in Canadian history, and the surviving members of the Donnelly family wanted justice. For the Vigilance Committee, there was no hiding from a crime of this magnitude. It was clear who was responsible.
0: They had arrested, I believe, a dozen members of the Vigilance Committee. It was hard to find people to testify against the Vigilance Committee. They're, you know, some of the more powerful men in the community. They had the numbers. They had the money. As
1: insane as it sounds, the legal battle ahead would not be as straightforward as it seemed. Even though everyone knew who did it and openly talked about who did it, justice was not a done deal. With the members of the Vigilance Committee arrested and detained, everything came down to the trial. It was going to be a hard case to win but Will Donnelly was driven to make sure that there would be a fair outcome. This is a letter written by Will at the time to the Crown Attorney Charles Hutchinson.
2: June 9th, 1880. Dear Sir, I'm satisfied now as to where they all met previous to the murder. Old Pat Ryder has a farm about a half mile south of my father's. On the east side of the road, there's a side road running by it which leads to Heenan's and Kennedy's. The Ryan family used this house when working on the farm. The morning after the murder, there were about 15 tracks covering this untraveled side road to this house. All the tracks led by John Doherty's house, which is situated by this side road. I understand Doherty saw them going and heard some of their conversation, but he's afraid to say anything. I found out a good motive for McLaughlin aiding in the murder. He was told we were going to burn him out after Ryan's burning. My wife is at her father's, and I do not sleep any two nights in the same house. Pat Sullivan, father of Ned Sullivan Vigilance, told Robert Keefe's son a few days ago, while talking of the murder, that there were not many guns at the doing of the deed, and that my father and brother Tom died very soft. Michael of this place went to join them one night, but it would not take him because he was friendly with us. It will be very hard to get them to tell the like of this, as there is no doubt Father Connolly is trying to seal all their mouths for the sake of catholicity. Yours truly, Will Donnelly.
1: Will was able to collect a bunch of people to testify against assailants. However, most of them ended up backing down and retracting their statements because they were threatened by members of the Vigilance Committee. That meant the testimony of Johnny O'Connor, who witnessed the entire massacre, would be crucial. It also put a target on his back, as his testimony would be imperative to the conviction of James Carroll and the rest of the perpetrators. When the trial finally arrived, it was seen by observers as remarkably unfair. Perjured alibis, perjured facts, perjured everything. Community bias against the Donnellys was strong. It would take a lot to overcome the lies and deceit. Eventually, things would come down to what Johnny O'Connor told the court. This is a part of his actual testimony.
3: My name is John O'Connor. I live in Lucan with my father and mother. My father's name is Michael O'Connor. I was acquainted with Mr. James Donnelly and his family. They lived in Biddulph. I went to Mr. Donnelly's house the evening before the murder. I went with Mr. Donnelly and Thomas Donnelly. They wanted me to feed the pigs and things while they went to Granton. Old Mr. Donnelly and Thomas came to the house for me. I went with them. I got to Donnelly's before dark. I was wakened up between... 12 and 2 o'clock the old man getting up woke me up the old man got up i saw james carroll holding a candle at the room door for the old man to dress himself the old man asked him what he was dressing him for now he said that he, he had another charge against him. the old man got himself dressed and was looking for his coat he came into the room to look for it i said here it is and he took it from under my head then the old man went into the kitchen and asked tom if he was handcuffed tom said yes Tom then asked him to read the warrant. Then the whole crowd rushed in and started hammering them with sticks. I was still lying in bed when they came in. I got under the bed. I saw Bridget run upstairs. I ran to go upstairs after her. I could see out into the front room from where I was lying under the bed. Bridget ran from the kitchen through the front room towards the stairs. I got out and followed her. The crowd were in the kitchen. There was no one in the front room when I ran through. I saw her when she got to the stairs door. I followed her. She shut the door after her. I ran back to the bedroom and got behind the clothes basket under the bed. It was light in the front room. Someone had a candle in the kitchen when I got under the bed again. Tom ran out of the kitchen and got out of the front door. When he got out the door, they started beating him with sticks. Some of them followed him outside. I don't know how many. I heard them hammering him. They carried him in and threw him down. I could hear the handcuffs rattle. One of them said, hit that fellow on the head and break his skull open. Then someone hit him three or four times with the spade. I saw someone carrying the spade. One of them said, fetch a candle here. They were doing something to Tom. I peeped out and saw Thomas Ryder and John Pertell. I had known them well before. I know Carol well. They were all standing around Tom. I saw one in woman's clothes. Some had their faces blackened. Carol Ryder and Pertell had not their faces blackened. Then one asked, where's the girl? Another answered upstairs. Then they went upstairs, a lot of them. I heard no noise upstairs. They came down and got a lamp and threw coal oil on the bed. One of them said the coal oil would burn off and would not set fire to the beds at all. I heard them say it was coal oil. I saw the lamp and heard them lay it down on the window. When they had set fire to the bed under which I was lying, they all ran out. Then I got out from under the bed and put on my pants. I got my coat and tried to quench the fire. I did not quench the fire. I ran out and saw them laying dead. The old woman was near the kitchen door. I tramped on her as I went through the door from the front room to the kitchen. I saw Tom lying near the front door. They were breathing. I did not look to see what state they were in. I ran out and ran across the road to Mr. Whalen's. His house is about 50 yards from Donnelly's house. I rapped at the door, and Miss Whalen asked who it was. I told her it was Mr. Connor's boy.
1: This statement was nothing but truthful and damaging to the murderers. Yet by the end of the trial, it didn't make a difference. Not a big one anyway. There was a hung jury and there would be a second trial. Crown Attorney Hutchinson pushed for a change of venue in hopes of finding objectivity.
4: Honorable O. O'Mowit, Attorney General. Sir, as it is, there does not appear much chance of any such result. The prejudice against the Donnellys and the sympathy in favor of the accused preclude the hope of a fair trial in this county. Mr. McGee and I therefore concur in recommending an application for a change of venue. As regards the county to which the venue should be changed, we would be satisfied to select Elgin or Oxford. It would be convenient to all parties and an impartial jury could no doubt be obtained. We do not think it will be advisable to go to trial till the fall. We have only six persons in custody, charged with murders in which at least 20 were concerned. The case for the Crown depends mainly upon the evidence of the boy O'Connor and Will Donnelly. Both require to be corroborated, if possible, to a greater extent than has as yet been accomplished. We are satisfied with the truth of their testimony, but the boy is very young and Donnelly's character very bad. And a jury would probably hesitate to convict without their evidence being amply corroborated. So many were concerned in the tragedy that the facts must be known to many, but no one will tell. The Bidulph people generally sympathize with the murderers, The few who do not are afraid to speak, even if they know anything which is not likely. The murders were the work of the Vigilance Committee, unless we are much astray and the Vigilance Committee is the offspring of the parish priest, Father Connolly, who has openly in a published letter declared his belief in the innocence of the accused and has taken every opportunity of denouncing the Donnellys and of inflaming public opinion against them.
1: In the end, the venue of the trial was not changed. And to make matters worse, the antics of the Vigilance Committee only got more intense as they worked to suppress testimony.
0: There was a set of brothers who uh, were neighbors to the Donnellys and friends to the Donnellys who were intimidated and bribed into informing on them and letting the Vigilance Committee know that they were home the night of. Uh, They left the country shortly thereafter and started a life in Ohio. But in coming back and visiting family, they had confided in Patrick Donnelly that they were told in advance what was happening and were bragged to afterwards about what happened. And so they had firsthand witness reports that Patrick then eventually convinced, uh, to bring trial against them, but they reneged on their, what they had said. They had said after, uh, their, uh, mortgages were paid off mysteriously, likely by the vigilance committee. And they chose not to testify. Um, the second trial where they got the, uh, not guilty verdict was difficult too because the uh the judge in charge at the time he was a big member of the conservative party and the conservative party at the time were trying to build a base among the catholics in the community and because the donnellys had upset so many catholics in the community it was seen that the uh, vigilance committee being punished would be bad for them and so the uh they appointed a prosecutor who was another good member of the conservative party and the uh defense was a good member of the conservative party and there's uh like in the trial t- you could, there's uh evidence that the judge was helping the defense lawyer through things like uh giving him advice and letting him know when he should be doing things and uh based on that the uh the trial was clearly not fair and he specific the judge specifically instructed the jury that he didn't think that it should be a guilty verdict and it was not a guilty verdict so it's uh, that's one of those things where it very clearly was not an actual fair trial. And that's the sad thing because that the kind of the weakness of the justice system and law at the time is part of what led to what happened to the Donnelly Zen. It still failed to do anything for them afterwards either.
1: There was a new trial, but there were no convictions. Another massive failure for the justice system. Sadly, the community wasn't exactly disturbed by it.
0: A lot of people at the time were happy that it happened. They were glad it happened. They would want it to happen again if needed. It's something that and that's the community was not, you know, one side positive or or one side negative. There was a split, but there were a lot of people who were very happy it was done. They were happy to be rid of the Donnelly's. They were a chaotic element in the community. And as the the railroad was coming through and things were starting to kind of quiet down in Lucan, they were seen as, you know, something that was still causing trouble, a relic of the past, just Unnecessary and violent, and they were happy it happened.
1: The Donnellys did get a small bit of justice after the massacre. Some would call it the Donnelly curse. Some call it a coincidence or the realities of life expectancy at the time. But some strange misfortunes continued to happen to members of the Vigilance Committee. They just started to die.
0: I know uh, James Carroll didn't live a whole lot longer. He ended up. Uh, he never married, never had kids, and ended up just dying alone. I believe eight years later in a logging camp, and. He, he wasn't he wasn't very old either. I forget exactly who, but they were uh, in a sleigh when it was struck by a train, which is a uh, you know a horrible accident. Uh, and because it's such an odd thing, especially thinking nowadays, but you think uh, you think back then trains were kind of newer in the area, Slaves weren't super fast.
1: But clearly, this wasn't enough in terms of serving justice. And through the years, descendants of the Vigilance Committee and locals of Lucan knew this, and it shows with the way the story has been treated.
0: A lot of the people who were friendly to the Donnellys left after that. Um, Ray Fizakis, when he was doing his uh, research for his books, he uh, met people in Michigan who even at the time denied being related to the people of the same name from Lucan because it was something they didn't want to associate with. And other than that, nobody spoke of it. It was something that was kind of a cone of silence for that generation. And the next generation kind of passed on what little bit they could squeeze out of their parents one of our members, uh, Tom McLaughlin, a uh, former mayor of Lucan, he uh, is the great grandnephew of a member of the Vigilance Committee. And he remembers asking his dad about it. And his dad didn't have much to say because his, his dad didn't talk about it. His uncle didn't talk about it. And it was like that for a long time in Lucan. Even when the museum opened originally in 1995, when it was just a small, small museum, there was a lot of opposition. They did not want anything to do with the Donnellys in the museum. But the Heritage Society push like this is part of our history, and it needs to be looked at, and it needs to be accepted and kind of reckoned with.
1: The Donnellys were not angels, and far from it, they were still a family of fighters and good ones at that. But to have their lives ended in the way they were was an extreme escalation that no one deserved. They were just people who grew up in a violent era, but happened to come out on top more often than not, and that's why we continue to tell their story.
0: It's something that's important because it's kind of a way of giving justice to the Donnellys, letting their story be told and not just be swept under the rug and be left as a secret um, and not told in a sensationalist way that's you know out there to make money um, as we often see with you know true crime nowadays. It's presented in a way that the family believes is respectful, that descendants of the some of the descendants of the vigilance committee believe is respectful and truthful it's something that's important, you know, like I said, not just to give justice to the Donnelly family and make sure that their story is told and they're not killed and swept away, but it's also kind of a good lesson for the future of what happens when there's no recourse to justice. And it's something you see throughout, you know, history forever. Um, when there's no recourse to justice, things kind of turn violent. Um, people naturally look for a certain level of fairness in the world and at least the feeling that they're not being abused or taken advantage of. And when there's no justice, no justice, no peace. This episode of the 519 podcast was hosted by Haley Cheng. It was written by Haley Cheng, Patrick Magrimans and Craig Needles and produced by Craig Needles. The 519 podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media.